Hi, I'm Eric Connor, Senior Instructor at New York Film Academy. And I'm Ariel Seagard, Acting Alum. And in this episode, we bring you an actual OG Ghostbuster, Ernie Hudson. Ghostbusters did this weird thing to my career, and I've been working before Ghostbusters. I've done some films. But when it came out, people began to think of me as a comedian. I'm not a comedian. I mean, those guys are from improv. I'm not. I'm an actor. Something strange. Funded up a 100-foot marshmallow man through the top three floors off an uptown high-rise. Ended up getting sued by every state, county, and city agency in New York. Guy shows up looking like a mime from hell, and you lose him right out in the open. My people are the ones who obey the law. 20th century sucks. Maybe the 21st will be better. I'm afraid of no ghosts. He's also appeared in more than 200 movies and TV shows. I mean, he was flat out terrific as the kind-hearted cop in The Crow. And then he's completely believable as a simple-minded handyman in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Ernie Hudson had recurring roles in Grace and Frankie, Modern Family, Law and Order, Desperate Housewives, Oz with our previous guest, J.K. Simmons. Saying Elsewhere, Congo, directed by another guest, Frank Marshall, Miss Congeniality, Transformers Prime. Oh, gosh, I think we've only got through about like 3% of his credits. Such is the career of a quintessential character actor. A performer just as comfortable playing a prison warden as he is hunting ghosts with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. And to hear Mr. Hudson describe it, his career never would have happened if he found any other job he was even halfway decent at doing. I grew up in a, a small town that was really economically depressed. Nobody in my family had been in show business. I mean, you know, it wasn't even part of a consideration. And so when I got out of high school, I wanted to find a quote-unquote good job. So my, my mother always told me, just find a good job. And I really, really tried. But, you know, I was just really so bad at everything. I mean, you know, you ever take those jobs and you think you're going to get fired at anything? Because you know you're not good at it. I mean, it's like, even if they say you're doing a good job, you know you're not doing it. And I'm like, man. So when I found acting, when I, when I walked into a theater and... I was at home. I mean, I thought, I can do this. That was, you know, okay, let me just say, so I do this and get the lines down and and I get paid. That's cool. I mean, that's, so I you know 45 years later, I'm still, it's like that. I mean, and people say, well, you did it because you love it so much. Yeah, I guess I'd love it, but I, I love the fact that I, this is what I, I understand. It's like, this is what I, it makes sense to me as opposed to other jobs that I probably could get through, but I just never really felt right. Mr. Hudson was on the scene for close to a decade when he heard about a little comedy called Ghostbusters. But even though he had just worked with director-producer Ivan Reitman on a previous project... Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. Yes. Mr. Hudson still had to fight just to get a chance to read for a role that changed his whole career. I first heard about Ghostbusters from... Ivan Reitman, I don't know if you remember, and Ivan Reitman is the producer, director of the, the, the movie. I did a movie with him the year before called Space Hunter for uh-huh. Columbia. And I heard about Ghostbusters, you know, it was, it was casting this big film, and but uh, my agent said there was nothing in it for me, and so that was the end of it, I never thought about it. And I saw Ivan Reitman in Los Angeles on an elevator, and he said, uh, yeah, I'm doing this movie with uh, Bill and Danny. I didn't know who Bill and Danny were. I mean, he just said Bill and Danny, like we all know. And then he said, but there's nothing in it for you. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, good luck with that. And 
And then I found out that there was a role that uh, they were thinking about going black with the role, and 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 everybody was getting in, and my agent couldn't get me in, and and I didn't understand because I thought, you know, you make this assumption that you're all friends, you know, and uh, but I couldn't get I couldn't get an interview, and this went on for a couple of months. I mean, and everybody I knew was going in, uh, including guys who weren't black. I mean, it was he was seeing everybody, and then finally um, we got this interview and. I got a hold to the script. I read the script, and it was a great, great character. I mean, it was like I was a single parent at the time, and I thought this is a this is a game changer. I mean, if I get this, if I get this role, I mean, my life is. And so I went in at Warner Brothers where they were uh, we were they were auditioning, and Ivan was there, and Harold Ramis was in the room, and um, you know I, I I killed him. You know I, I was funny, man. That was that was good. You know when you go yeah. You know, and, and I just knew I, I had it. And then nothing happened for a couple of weeks, and then they brought me back again uh, to put me on film. But I thought, they had a camera in the room the first time, but okay, so I went back again and went on camera, and, and I nailed it again. And then they said, but you know, we want him to come back again. We want to put him on camera. And so I went in again. And I, I heard from my agent that they really, really liked me. It was really, it looked like it might work out. And then a month or so went by, and I didn't hear anything. And then I made the mistake that actors do. I called Karen, the casting director, Karen Ray. I don't know if she's mm. around anymore. And said, uh, of course, I tried to be clever. I said, you know, actually, I'm thinking about taking a vacation to Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was just checking because I wanted to make sure that I was here in town in case it came up. I didn't want to be out of town. She said, well, they're in New York, and there's an actor they want to see, Clavon Derricks. Then they'll decide. So a week or so later, after all this stuff, they offered me the role, and uh, that was the beginning of that whole thing. So, so it was kind of bittersweet. I mean, I went in, I fought for the role, I got the role, but it was in many ways very difficult. Job. Despite having such notable SNL alums as Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd in the cast, Mr. Hudson didn't view the film as a guaranteed hit. I don't think you can really tell when you work on a film. There's sort of three movies that you make, the movie you intend to make, uh, the movie that you make, and the movie that you thought you made, because by the time people get through playing with it, you don't know what you got. So it's kind of hard to say what's going to be successful, and I've done a lot of films that people would have, you know, thought was going to be just, you know, huge that didn't do anything. And other films that, uh, we did The Hand of Rock's Cradle, and I didn't think anybody would ever even watch it, and it turned out to be um, a hit, and we did The Cowboy way that they tested off the charts and they thought it was going to be huge and it, you know, it, it wasn't, except for some cowboys in Arizona who I met. But, um, <laughs> but it's hard to say. So yeah. uh, I knew that Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and uh, Harold, you know, with the Saturday Night Live stuff, I knew they were really popular. And I think when we were making it, because, you know, it, it was a big budget, uh, you knew that it would do business, but... The fact that I'd be talking about it 27, 28 years later, uh, I didn't. I had no no idea. Ghostbusters 2 came along um, five years after the fact, which I, I never could figure out why it took so long. I thought five years was long. Now it's been like 20 years, but uh, since the last one. But um, you know, I, I love being a part of it. I thought the first one was just really just much more original, but but I made more money doing the second one. So. <laughs> People say you have fun, you have most fun when you're making money, and, you know, and uh, that's kind of cool, too. 
While working on Ghostbusters, Mr. Hudson got another surprise that was unfortunately not quite so pleasant. One that showed him that the role you get will not always be the same that you actually play. The character in Ghostbusters, I thought that was a, a career-changing character. Now, what there are so many things that, as an actor, you don't control. The role in Ghostbusters that came in on page six and was this amazing role, by the time we got ready to shoot it, he came in on page 68. So that was a very different character than what I thought I'd be going into. Now, part of my growing up process is you have to adjust to what is, which was not an easy thing to do. And the game has changed. I find most actors, no matter what they've done, or how successful they've been, people still want you to, to audition, to come in, to read. And so ultimately you have to make the decision, is it something I really want to do? Is it worth my go? Because if you want it, then you got to go and fight for it. And if you haven't saved your money and you need the job, you got to go in and fight for it even though you really don't want it, which is a really sucky place to be at. But yeah, most people still want you to um, come in, to audition, to do this thing. They seem to think actors, it's fun. I'm like, why is that fun? I mean, as a director, you might show some of your work, but you have to come in here and... I feel like auditioning, like you really go in and you pull your pants down and you stand there and they say, okay, uh, thank you, thank you Ernie for coming in. And then you kind of pull your pants up and try to be somewhat graceful about it and then walk out. I mean, that's an awful, but, I, but that's how it feels. The acting part is a lot of fun. The auditioning part, especially when they know your work, it's like, well, why am I here reading three lines? I mean, it gets like that. And you're lucky to be the guy who gets in and read three lines because the guy you know who had a series for eight years, he can't even get in to get the three to read for the three lines. So the game has changed a bit, but that's part of it. That's what we do, and I, I, I sort of take it that way. But as an actor, auditioning for a role that you really want is beyond worth it. If you want it, you gotta fight for it. I used to say there are only three reasons for working. One is, it's a great role. I mean, I'll do anything for a great role. I'll pay you if it's a great role. I did a movie called um, Everything's Jake. We shot in New York. These two students from Syracuse wrote this great script about this great character. And uh, we shot it in New York, and I love the movie. It didn't, they knew how to make a movie, but they didn't know how to get it distributed, and the movie sort of went nowhere. But I love that character. So as an actor, Give me a reason. If it's a great role, yeah, I, because I, I want, I'm still looking for that opportunity to do what I know I can do, which I don't feel I've been able to do it. On stage, I did The Great White Hope, and that was everything I had to, everything I had. I haven't had that opportunity to do that in film. I love the fact that Brandon Lee got the crow before he passed away, because I think it was very tragic that he passed away, but what a role to get a chance to show what you can do. So if it's, if it's no role, then, uh, then pay me some money. I mean, I love to people you know, say, well, why don't you do that role? And I say, well, they gave me $10 million. And people go, oh, okay. You know, I understand. <laughs> you know, it's like, but when uh, there's no role and you have no money, I'm like, well, and why do I want to do this? Now, the, the third reason is if it's somebody, it's Spielberg. You know, it's somebody who you think is going to be kind in the future and remember the favor you're doing for him which doesn't happen very often anyway, but at least you go, I want to work with good people. So, you know, Andy Garcia, who's a friend, he was here, I guess, a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Andy's in the movie, and somebody, yeah, so, okay, I'm doing it for that reason. But, you know, I get offered films that 
the character is not even well developed. There's no money, and I don't even know the people doing it. And actors, we, we uh, have a hard time saying no. I was uh, listening to Betty White's uh, book on tape, and she was saying it's very hard to say no. You know, it's like, oh, it's a chance to work. I, maybe I should take this because maybe it might be seen and maybe, yeah. But good roles are hard to find. A few years after Ghostbusters, Ernie Hudson appeared in one of his other biggest hits, Curtis Hansen's psychological thriller, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Their trust. I don't know what we would have done without her. Is her weapon. If something happens to my mommy, you take care of me. Of course I would. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. It's my family. The hand that rocks the cradle. The role of Samuel, a mentally challenged handyman, originally called for a completely different physical type. But Mr. Hudson knew he could pull off the part and put in the research to make it work. Well, you know, after uh, The Hand of Rocks the Cradle came out, people would meet me and they go, hello, hi. <laughs> so, uh, but Ghostbusters did this weird thing to my career. And I've been working before Ghostbusters. I'd done some films. But when it came out, people began to think of me as a comedian. I'm not a comedian. I mean, those guys are from improv. I'm not. I'm an actor. And so getting dramatic roles were, you know, it was just difficult, Get, even getting interviews. And so when The Hand of Rocks the Cradle came along... Disney was doing it um, through Hollywood Films, and I, once again, I had a hard time getting an interview. So I, sometimes you almost have to go, and you have to stay on the agent, you have to do everything you can do to get in the room, because I really related to the character. You know, the character was written as a um, five-foot-eight fair Irishman, whatever that means. And it didn't mean me, that's for sure. <laughs> so, uh, but I just felt really that if I can get in here and... And so I went into the meeting with Curtis Hansen, but in working on the character, which is what your question is, they have these, uh, in San Bernardino, there's a Friday night party they go to. And so I went to, I went to some of the homes and met some of the people. When I first went to the party, um, uh, I, I went in and people came over to me and they said hi, and they kind of hugged me. And, and I thought, oh, because, uh, you know, they know I'm... I'm a Ghostbuster. No, they did it to everybody. It was like, it had nothing to do with anything. You know? But I found a guy who was, um, see, sometimes you can be mentally disabled, but sometimes you can be high-functioning in, in a certain area. And this particular guy I met, he couldn't live on his own, but he could really do these elaborate drawings, certain things he could really do really well, which is what Solomon had to do to be able to build a fence and all that. And he was the one I patterned the character on. Also, I think uh, I, I used to believe that I could be different people, and I've since learned that you can't be different people. I mean, it's, you just can't. You are who you are. But if your life had gone in a different direction and with different influences, you could be differently. And when I was a kid, I used to, to work in the fields and pick fruit, and this guy once kicked me, and I fell and hit my head and, and knocked me unconscious. And, I mean, I was fine. At least I think I am. But I, I always wonder if something had seriously happened and I had gone in that direction. So Solomon was me if something had happened and how do I, you know, so. And that's how you, so you just, to me, that's how you kind of, with a lot of characters, you know, because acting is believing. So if I can create as much believability, then if I can believe it, then you can believe it. Right. If I can't believe it, then I don't expect anybody to believe it. 
Marnie Hudson faced a very different challenge on Frank Marshall's Congo, based on the Michael Crichton novel. As Patton Oswalt described it on AP Bio, it's got everything teens love. It's got gorillas, it's got lasers, it's got a character named Herkimer Homolka. That character is played by Tim Curry, and the gorillas do sign language. Laura Linney goes full Schwarzenegger and- Hey, 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 calm down, take a breath. Thanks to special effects wizard Stan Winston, Mr. Hudson didn't have to share the screen with a single real ape. Though, as he explains, acting with special effects presents its own set of problems. No, I don't work with gorillas, real gorillas, so that so that means none of the gorillas are real in anything that I was in. But it's funny because a lot of people ask because Stan Winston, who did the animatronics or whatever they they did a great job but it's great when you have i mean it's they're believable looking and and you can sort of it, it makes your job easier you know if you got a, a marshmallow man that there's nothing there and then they're trying to describe it to you it's a little bit harder to you know to go with it but obviously that's what you're getting paid for the the in ghostbusters to the train sequence where there's a train coming and i get hit by the train what's that What's what? Sounds like a train. Uh-uh. These lines have been abandoned for 50 years. I don't know. Sounds awfully close to me. Did you catch the number on the locomotive? Sorry. I missed it. Ivan Reitman, who directed it, uh, I said, okay, now let me just so I'm clear. Now the train, I'm on the tracks and the train hits me. So yeah, I said, just like if you were on, on a train track and the train comes in, bam, you get hit. And I said, but well, what is a train like? He says, like, it's, it's a real, like a locomotive that just comes down the track. And so when I got hit, I thought it's like I got hit by a locomotive. And then when I saw the movie, it was like this little choo-choo. It was like this fake choo-choo. It was like, that's not a locomotive. I don't know what I would have done differently, but Sometimes when you see stuff, it's not at all. I mean, you can't really imagine the Marshmallow Man climbing up a building until you see the movie and you've got, oh, that's the Marshmallow Man. Uh, even though you got a little model of him, but it's still, that takes it to a different place. Similar to how CGI changed Hollywood, there were a few HBO shows back in the 90s that completely changed the landscape of television. The Sopranos, The Larry Sanders Show, and the prison drama Oz. The groundbreaking show brought a new level of authenticity and depth of performance to the small screen. Ernie Hudson was proud to be part of it, but the nature of his character often affected how he was treated on set. It's interesting because I, I, I'm very humble because I'm, I can't believe that I'm actually an actor. I mean, I just think what they do is really cool, and so the fact that I get to do it, but I, I'm really impressed by when actors sort of, you know, um, put things on the line. But when I would go, and I have a little ritual with most characters, especially if you're doing a TV show, because you have to kind of do it every week and you have to kind of get up for it. Uh, it's a little bit different than when you're working on a film. So when I go in, when I would go into Oz, you know, I'd, I'd shine my shoes, I put on the uniform, I put on the suit. So now I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm, I'm the warden, and um, I'm not one of those guys who uh, I got to be in character all the time. I mean, like, you know, we just do it and it's, it's done. Let's move on. 30, 40 years ago when I first started, I, you know, my kids couldn't call me by my name. They'd have to call me by the character's name, but you know, you sort of change. But these are a lot of young actors, not young age-wise, but a lot of them just really starting out. And, uh, and they were really into character. So 
when I'd go in, everybody's like, hey, Ernie, what's up, and all that. But when I came out in my, it's like they would just, it was like nothing. It was just really cold. Mm. And I'm like, hey, you know, no, it just wasn't happening. And I, and I, it, I just found that very odd. And also, they would be in a scene that we'd be doing, and they'd be like, <clears throat> like out there, you know. And I, and I was like, okay, all right, so we got to do it like that. So we got to, okay. One thing Mr. Hudson's behind-the-scenes work does not include is a burning desire to direct. You know, I think to be a good director, you really got to like to run the show. You really got to like to be the guy who organizes everything and pulls it together and the guy in charge. I don't like being a guy in charge, you know what I mean? I like doing what I do. I know that sounds lazy, but, you know, get it together. You know, the actress just left and... We don't know why, and she's in a trailer. You go talk to her. I don't want to be the guy to talk to her. You know what I mean? I don't want to, I want to do what I do. So that wouldn't make me a very good director. Mm. I do like writing because in my world as a writer, I control everything until you take it and screw it up. But until then, it's my world. And I know that about myself, you know? Mm. So I don't really... If there was a project I was really passionate about with good people... When I was in college, I did a lot of directing for stage. And... <laughs> Actors are so, you know, man, they get into their stuff and they, they're late and they're, it's very frustrating. I'm not the kind of guy who who likes to control. Some guys love that. It's a challenge, you know, and uh, I'm not one of those people. You know, I, yeah. I you know, I, the, hard, the hardest time I have now finding a good assistant is I'm like, you know what, never mind. I'll just do it myself. So I end up paying somebody. I end up doing all the work anyway. It doesn't make sense, you know, but... Um, that's that's my that's my flaw. So what does the future hold for Ernie Hudson? Well, most likely another hundred plus roles, with no plans of slowing down. Oh, it's the only thing I know how to do. You know, I do it as long <laughs> as you know. I mean, I'm not very good at anything. So, um, you know, I mean, I could write, but doesn't mean anybody gonna pay me any money to do it. So, this is what I'll do until. Um, I'm not saying I wouldn't do anything else, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean. I've always worked, even as a kid, so, you know, find a way to make a living doing something. Uh, hopefully the same thing I've been doing, and hopefully you bring something to the table, and, and hopefully there's a reason why people, I mean, why would somebody give me a job? You hope you bring something. I mean, if you're going to do something, then for God's sake, do it well enough to where you bring it. You don't want to be in a situation where somebody gives you a job as a favor, you know, or because they want to sleep with you. I have no problem with people wanting to sleep with me, but I like to think I got the job because I'm the best person, because I bring something to the table. I mean, you've got to be that good. I like to believe that they cast me because I really was the best person out there, and not because you know, I knew somebody. But that's just me. I'll take the job however I can get it, but I like to believe that it's because I'm, I'm really good. We want to thank Ernie Hudson for turning these jobs into so many memorable roles during his 40-year career. And thanks to all of you for listening. He's Eric Connor, And she's Ariel Seagard. And this episode was based on the Q&A moderated by Chris Devane. To watch the full interview or to see our other Q&As, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash New York Film Academy. This episode was written by Eric Connor, edited and mixed by Christian Hayden. 
Our creative director is David Andrew Nelson, who also produced this episode with Christian Hayden and Eric Connor. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, John Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. A special thanks to our events department, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See See you you next time. time. those listening at home, we are now dancing. Ooh, that's a good move. All right. I think you got enough. <laughs>